Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'll tell you of a time in our life, Teresa and I, about 15 years or so ago, not quite 15 years ago, I think, were contacted by a friend of mine, and he and his wife were wanting to go on a trip and invited us to go with them. I had gone to college with this guy, and uh, we were, I guess, more like brothers than friends, and uh, did a lot of running together and uh, had run some races together, and he said, uh, there's a half marathon on Mackinac Island, which is the northern part of Michigan. It's actually between the lower part of Michigan and the upper peninsula. It's where two of the Great Lakes come together right at the top, and uh, Mackinac Island has its own appeal. I'll talk about that in a second. And so he asked me if I was interested in, in us going as couples to spend some time up there. And I said, well, I don't know. It sounded like a good idea. And I said, how much does it cost? And he told me, and I said, no, I don't think I'm interested. Thank you. And uh, he said, no, 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 don't. He said, there's several reasons. So he said, let me just send you the brochures, and y'all can look at it. And so, so we started looking at the brochures, and uh, I began to understand a little more why he wanted to go there. It's beautiful. And there's a place there called the Grand Hotel. And if you know the movie Somewhere in Time, it's where that particular movie, most of it was filmed. And that was back like in the 1900s when that film first came out, I think. And um, his wife, my friend's wife, was a literature teacher in high school. And so she was familiar with the story and loved the movie and wanted to go. And plus he and I could go run this race and uh, so they sent us these brochures I started looking at. Well, the appeal of Mackinac Island is that they have passed a bunch of laws there that essentially outlaw motorized vehicles. And so it's a throwback in time. It's a nice little quaint place. If you're looking for a nice place to get away with your honey, then that's not a bad place to go. Uh, horse-drawn carriages and, uh, you know, little shops and nice resort place to stay and Food was great and all that. So uh, he sent these brochures and we were hooked. And so Teresa and I decided to go. And uh, it was a great experience for us. If it had not been for the brochures, I doubt had we would have been willing to spend the money to do it. I want you to take that picture and I want you to put it into our modern perceptions of how we do evangelism. Now, I want to clarified that term first. Evangelism here I'm using in the sense of, all right, I'll, let me just, I'll just, I told you before I was going to be transparent. I'll just cut straight to the chase here. Um, realistically, churches teach people how to sell Christianity. Well, at least that's the way we approach it. Much of the evangelism that we do is really tied to uh, the way an attorney would try to influence a jury to get them to make a decision. And so we promote our product. Now I'm into a marketing terminology here where we as Christians come and we say to somebody who's outside of Christ, outside of the church, wouldn't you like to buy into this product we call being a Christian? Now you don't have to be a brain surgeon. All you have to do is be honest. Just look around and see how many people are not interested in Christianity in the modern day and age and figure out something's out of whack here. 
So we tend to promote it in such a way that would make those brochures I was talking about, Mackinac Island, seem like they have nothing to do with us. Uh, and so except for one, maybe, maybe two differences. If you were to put together a brochure to try to get somebody who's outside of Christ interested in becoming a Christian, what would you include in it? If it was up to you to swing the deal in somebody's salvation experience, how would you do that? Now, typically, what we do, what we teach people to do in churches, involves selling them insurance. First of all, there's the fire insurance approach. You know what that is. If you don't accept Christ as your Savior, now you fill in the blanks for me, what happens? You're going to go to hell. Interestingly, that many Christians in one side of the mouth will tell somebody to go to hell and out of the other side of their mouth will say to them, oh, you need to know Christ or you're going to go to hell. I know some of you are a little bit worked up that I just said it that way. But it doesn't seem to bother you in the day-to-day course of living, does it? And so we go to sell fire insurance. You need Christ or you're going to go to hell. How effective is that for the most part? For a society that doesn't believe in hell, it's kind of hard to sell that one these days. So some of us have gone another step, and in this insurance that we're selling to them, uh, it's not just fire insurance, it's also life insurance. And that's the part that says, if you'll accept Christ as your Savior, what do you get out of that? Eternal life. Never mind the fact that their lives are so miserable in this day and age that the thought of living eternally like we're talking about their lives are now just scares them away. But you see, I want you to hear me say this. Both of those are right. If you don't accept Christ, maybe you're here today. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you die today, you're going to go to hell. That's reality. Okay, I don't like that for you, so I want to come to you and say, you need Jesus Christ in your life. Because you, okay, now, now we're to a monopoly term, that's your get out of hell deal, Jesus is. But he's also your eternal life deal. He doesn't just save you from something, he saves you to something, and that something is eternal life. And for many churches and many methods of evangelism, what we say in church is sell some insurance. But there's another element that we might include if we were putting together a brochure. And this one is actually what we have come to refer to as the abundant life. If you want somebody who is outside of Christ and maybe even antagonistic to Christ to come and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, one of the things we might put in that is if you'll come to know... Well, let's take John 10, 10. What does it say? The thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life. But he doesn't stop there. He uses a term there, and I'm going to put it in road trammelese for you this morning. I have come to give you life that will blow your ever-loving mind. And that's the terminology that Jesus uses. Now we're into a point 
for people who are living lives, as one guy said, lives of quiet desperation, to come and to offer somebody, here's life that is beyond anything you've ever experienced or even could imagine when you get right down to it. And I see that goes in the brochure. If you're just trying to get somebody to buy into something, that's what you need. It's something that hooks them in to say, this is good for you. Not just to get out of something and not just for a life that starts after you die, but right now. We could also throw into this brochure, this appeal to people, what I call community life. This is that part that takes the isolation reality for so many people who are are alone in a crowd full of people every moment of their lives. This is the part that says when you come to Christ, there is an immediate family that you join. I experienced this several times through the years. Most recently, several years ago, well, I guess most recently was when we came here. Even though we had grown up other places and knew other people and served in another place for decades, come here and immediately there is a connection with people. You know why that is? It's not because we're great. And as great as you are, it's not because you're great. It's because Jesus Christ makes us a family. And no matter where we go, we're family. And there's a connection point there. Well, that probably needs to be in a brochure as well. If we're trying to get people who are outside of Christ into Christ and we feel like we have to do some kind of a marketing thing, and I'm not saying we should, I'm just trying to follow that line of thinking for a second, then we need to have something in there that says, this is good for you today and from this day forward. Go with me in your minds to when Jesus chooses his disciples. How did he say it to them? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You see, modern marketers would say, well, that's a little weak, Jesus. They followed him. Do you think that they would have followed him if Jesus would have said, let's take Matthew, for instance, the tax collector? You think Matthew would have gotten up and followed Jesus if Jesus told him, follow me and by the way, the end of your life, you'll find yourself in Ethiopia and you'll be killed by a sword because of your following me. Matthias, the one who took Judas's place. You think he would have been a follower of Jesus if Jesus would have told him from the outset that he would be stoned to death and then beheaded in Jerusalem because of his faith in Jesus? Or James, his half-brother. Or Andrew, or my favorite, one of the early disciples, followers of Christ, Mark. If Jesus would have said to him, Mark, because of following me, you will be dragged to pieces in Alexandria in front of their pagan idol. Or to Simon Peter, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men after which you'll go to Rome and be crucified on a cross because you identified with me. You know what doesn't make the brochure for modern Christianity, making its appeal to people? 
the reality of persecution. It's not a good selling point to go to somebody and say, if you'll accept Christ as your Savior, there's a better than average chance that you're going to pay a high price for that. It's not appealing. Matter of fact, it tends to be kind of appalling, doesn't it? The idea that we might, because of our faith in Christ, have to pay the price, that doesn't fit our all honey and no bees approach to Christianity at all. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, and then following again in verses 11 and 12, the final of all the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That doesn't make the brochure, does it? When it comes right down to it, our appeals to other people, our loved ones, that you need to accept Christ as your Savior, we never include the fact that they could very well have to pay a high price for that. Persecution for our faith. It doesn't seem to fit in our good westernized American way of thinking. Those of us who have grown up in a society in America that puts an emphasis on rights, and it's my God-given, I think our Constitution or one of those documents says, inalienable right. Among those is the ability, the right to pursue religion as we see fit. Doesn't fit my rights if I'm going to be persecuted for the way I believe. Well, see, here's my problem with a passage like this. Preaching to an American audience. I'm not sure that in America we really suffer as Christians for our faith. I know that there's probably some exceptions to that. Maybe even some of you sitting here today, you're paying a price in your family because you've chosen to follow Christ. I understand that. But as a rule, the church in America, we don't really have to pay a whole lot. We don't, we don't have to worry. Like, for instance, I went to Turkey a couple of years ago. And I went with a tour group. It was a church group uh, or a group of church people. <laughs> That's not necessarily Christian, but they were at least church people. And we went over there. The guy who was leading it had been a chaplain in the United States Air Force. And uh, he was a nice guy. Much of his family group went and, and a handful of others of us. And we made our way through Turkey, the countryside of Turkey, uh, as we were touring the sites of the seven churches of Revelation, the ruins of those. If you want to know what that looks like, go out in your backyard, put a bunch of rocks up in the corner, and that's kind of what it is. It saved you a lot of money. Okay. But we had an incident there that shocked me out of my westernized, safe American Christianity kind of thinking. We were in Ankara, which is the capital city for Turkey. Uh, people everywhere. I, I just, you know, I'd seen pictures of some of these European uh, places and... Uh, Technically, Ankara is more Eastern than European, but nonetheless, 
you know, it was these buildings built right up to, and then sidewalks and some streets didn't even have, where they couldn't even take cars because the press of people were such, it was just, just people packed in. It was just, you know, for a guy from West Texas where there's no trees and, you know, you could just see forever. It was like, <laughs> get me, ah, kind of stuff for me. And our guide said, we're going to go meet somebody for supper. And so y'all stay with me because we're going to have to walk to get there. Couldn't take our bus back up into this area. So we're in Ankara, the capital city, and there are people everywhere. And, and it's now turning into dark. I mean, nighttime's coming. And by, we start walking. Now here's a boatload of people on this tour bus. And we're starting to walk. And the press of humanity is such, I start freaking out because I'm thinking, if I lose sight of that tallest guy in our group, that means I'm alone. I don't speak Turkish. I'm in trouble. So... I, you see a fat boy move, I promise you. If you were watching me, I, I was hooking it. Busting through people, you know, excuse me. Excuse, pardon me, pardon me. God bless you. No, I didn't say that. Um, I was watching the tallest guy, hoping that he was seeing somebody else. And they led us out of the main thoroughfare stuff into these back streets in Ankara, Turkey. And his press of humanity was still intense. By now it was full dark. We went into this area where there was a lot of nightlife. And I was thinking, you know, this is like those Russian mobster movies, you know, where somebody disappears. And that's what I was thinking was happening. They took us way back. And finally we went into almost like an alley and into a dining establishment. I, I didn't really know that's what it was when we went in. But once we got in there... I could see there's still people everywhere. And then they took us through that dining establishment to the back, to a room in the back. And actually, if you think of a kind of a large walk-in closet, that's kind of what it was like. And they had a table set up, and they set us all back there. And we sat in, and so we're totally removed from all of the regular customers. And as we're sitting back there... Our guide tells us, now the people that are going to come to meet us are actually American missionaries. Now, they can't let that be known around here. As a matter of fact, the guy, I'm not going to tell you what he did because this goes out on the internet and I just, I don't know who knows what happens, but I'll just tell you, the guy that came to meet us was from America, a wife and two young children. They came in and they sat down with us, sat down close to where I was, and so I had a chance to talk with him through the whole course of the meal. He started telling me some of what he was doing there, but he had a secular job in Turkey, but his real reason for being there was to be a missionary. And I was thinking to myself, why the cloak and dagger? Why the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff? And then he started telling me some of the reality of that area. He told me the story of a Turkish national who made a profession of faith and converted from Islam to Christianity. And how some of the people, and this is in a nearby city, one of the cities we had been in, as a matter of fact. And he said how those local Islamic Muslim leaders saw to it that that guy was taken out of his apartment, taken to another place, and summarily executed after incredible, horrendous stuff that was done to him. Strictly because he had gone from being Muslim to being Christian. 
as this missionary was telling me what had happened to that guy, I sat there thinking not of myself now, thinking of him and how incredibly dangerous it was for him to be there doing what he was doing. We don't have that in America. There's a better than average chance that you're not going to get pulled out of this service and taken to some backroom closet somewhere and executed for your faith. So when I come to passages like this, and I know that I'm preaching to an American audience, I think, well, you know, does this really get down on the bottom shelf of where we live? And it dawns on me every time I start thinking that way, why doesn't it get down on the bottom shelf of where we live? You see what Jesus is saying here? In the scheme of the whole Beatitudes, where he uh, emphasizes and identifies key characteristics of people who walk with Christ. He gets to the last one. Congratulations to you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Maybe the reason we in American Christianity are not persecuted is not at all because of our rights... It's because people can't tell us apart from the world. Maybe we should emphasize the righteousness part of this. Jesus doesn't say, it's possible that some of you are going to have to pay the price. It is a normal course of Christian living. Some places, clearly more so than others. How long has it been since you took a shot from somebody because of your faith. Now, I'm not talking about taking a shot just because uh, you're offensive to somebody else. Listen, God doesn't hand out bra- uh, what you, purple hearts for offensive Christians. That's not what this is about. This is about being righteous, about living the right kind of life. It's a tough call, I think, on one level. Here's why it surprises me that Jesus comes to this beatitude. Oh, by the way, before I even get to that, did you notice this? How many verses has each of the other beatitudes been given? One. Why do you suppose Jesus gives three to this one? (laughs) That's an interesting question. If he only gives one to the fundamental part of Christian living, which is blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize their dependence upon God. If he only gives one verse there, why does he give three to this one? And I want you to also, while we're on it, let's notice the structure change from verse 10 to verses 11 and 12. Now, some scholars say those are also beatitudes. I don't believe so. Matter of fact, I think I could give you a pretty good detailed argument about it. I'm going to save you uh, all of that today. Just to, Let me just highlight a couple of things. First of all, verse 10 matches every other one of the Beatitudes. He gives a condition and a promise. Verse 11 turns it, though, and verse 10, blessed are those. It's a wide-open blanket kind of statement. Verse 10, he ties it in directly. Blessed are you. We might even see Jesus sitting on that hillside as he now makes eye contact with those key disciples like Peter who's going to ultimately be crucified. 
Like Matthew, who's going to be killed for his faith. Like James, like Matthias, like Andrew, like all of those others who are going to die horrendous deaths because of them following Jesus. Jesus shifts his gaze, I believe, and he said, Blessed are all of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and blessed are you, and put your name in the blank. When others revile you persecute you, say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Why do you think Jesus does that? Because he wants them to know it's coming. You saw as we started, the title of this sermon is, This is Gonna Hurt. (laughs) Christian life is not for wimps. It is not about all honey with no bees. There's a price to pay. And our American evangelism doesn't emphasize that because we're moving for the sale rather than the truth. Many times our evangelism is more about us than it is about them. How do we respond? How how do you respond when something doesn't go your way about your faith? Let's, let's get real practical. I don't, I'm, I'm brand new here, okay? I'm in my fifth month now, which means I've been here long enough to know some things I shouldn't talk about. Ah, oh, let's go ahead. I don't want to know your opinion about what I'm about to say, okay? Please don't tell me because I don't want to have a problem with you or you with me. The issue of Should the Ten Commandments be displayed in a courtroom? Well, let's let's join the season. Should government property allow nativity scenes? The church of my day argues for rights. Why should it surprise us that a secular lost world won't endorse our Jesus? Why should that bother us? And yet we find, especially this time of the year, this groundswell of movement. Jesus is the reason for the season. That sounds really good. But what's behind that whole argument? We have a right for our voice to be heard too. And so we fight some of those things. In courts, we fight those things. How should we respond when the world that's out there doesn't endorse our brand of religion? Notice I used a real perjurative term there. Our brand of religion. I didn't say our faith. I said our brand of religion. When the world out there won't endorse it, what do we do? Fight it in the courts? What does Jesus say to do? Look at verse 12. The only place in all of the Beatitudes now, eight of them we've looked at, only place where Jesus gives a command and he gives two of them back to back. What are they? Rejoice. See, you all checked out on me, didn't you? I can see you just went to lunch already, didn't you? Rejoice and... Be glad. That's a redundant statement. It says the same thing. Is that how we tend to respond when things don't go our way? When the 
government says you can't do this, how do we respond to that? Well, I'm going to get a hold of the souped-up attorneys at such and such an organization, and we'll just see about that. Rejoice and be glad. You know what? That's kind of a ridiculous example I'm using, but there again, I haven't known very many Christians that got jerked out of their homes and beaten for their faith either. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. My mind goes to the story that was told by Chuck Colson, I think, a, a while back. It occurred in a place in Egypt where Christians were being cracked down upon by the government. And so they went in, the government did, to the Christian community there. This was, by the way, in 1996. A thousand Christian, Egyptian Christians were taken and manacled to the doors. Girls were raped, children were beaten, and ultimately a thousand were murdered next to a cross. How do we respond to that as a people? Here's my deal on a sermon like this. I get tired sometimes of Christians fighting battles that ultimately alienate us more than they endear us to a lost world. We'll fight to the death over whether we should have prayer in schools and then never bother to pray at home. I don't get that. And somewhere, we've got to come back to Jesus and these disciples. Jesus who said, if you'll live the life that I have designed. By the way, these Beatitudes we've looked at talks about that, what that looks like. And if we'll do that, a lost world out there cannot help but look at us and see the difference in a very positive way. The most winsome person on the planet in the first century was Jesus himself. People flocked to him. In days where they had to walk miles in bad terrain, they just were drawn to him. Why is that? And so today for us, my encouragement to us as a people is that we get the emphasis where it belongs. I hope you don't have to suffer persecution, whether in your family or in this land. But I also hope that if your righteousness is what triggers persecution, then that can always be where you put your feet down. Don't fight battles you don't have to fight for the cause of Christ. Just focus on living a life that causes God to look at you and say, that's what I'm talking about. Because when you do that, I'll promise you the world's not going to like it. Oh, now they can't deny it that something's real about it, but they're not going to like it. When you take a stand for Christ, somebody's going to take a shot at you. Jesus promises that. But he also congratulates us to say, that's what I'm talking about. And when it happens, just know that you're in great company. You want to know what kind of great company you're in? Go read the story of Jeremiah and how he suffered because of his relationship with God and his righteousness. Read the stories of those disciples. Read the story of Jesus himself.
You see, when we determine to live for Christ, it sets us against the world's value system. We don't have to go fighting battles in court. We're going to fight battles every day, every step of the way. Because our value system is different. And so when you pay the price, verse 12, rejoice. Okay, now this is the part where I've got to be honest with you. I don't do that very well. <laughs> you remember my deal, road trammel thing? You squirt me the water gun, I'm going to run over you with my truck. I like what one guy said. Well, I, mean, I don't like it, like it, but one guy said, if you cross me, I'm going to set your house on fire, and then I'm going to shoot you when you come running out. Now, isn't that the way most of us respond to persecution? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad you're in good company. Let's pray. I want you to think back to that circle that I asked you to draw around yourself when we started. I want you to think on the terms, just you, nobody else around you, just you. Think on the terms of righteousness. If you were to suffer today, would it be because of your life? Or would it be for a cause? Congratulations to the one who's persecuted for his righteousness sake. For his, that is Christ's, righteousness sake. Father, we ask you to help us to be honest enough right now to evaluate our lives at the point of whether we deserve to be persecuted or not. Where we have fallen short, we ask your forgiveness. Not a single one of us ultimately can say, yes, my life argues for persecution. We are very selfish usually. We confess that before you. Pray that you would take us to the foot of the cross in grace and mercy. Help us to see that the highest price was paid, paid for our sin, paid by you because of love. Help us to take that very seriously, Father. In a world that desperately needs us to be right, and to share the message of love that was exhibited best on the cross, the message of power best seen at the resurrection. As you reach into our lives and change us. Father, give us a wisdom to know which battles to fight, which ones not to. Move us away from a folk Christianity to one that is genuine and real and one that causes waves in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.